Good afternoon. Let's prepare for the hearing of the word with a word of prayer to the Lord. Father, we we thank you that we can dive into your word today. We ask that in this time that you would manifest your son to us, that we would learn more about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would come to love him more because the more we know of him and what he's done for us, the more love that we have for him. We ask that this teaching today would do just that. And I pray that you would use my mouth as the means for the Holy Spirit to communicate your word about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ today. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in our last message, we looked at the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ with regards to Mary and Joseph. Now, today, we're going to continue that. And if you have your Bibles, you may want to be ready at these two passages. We're going to be in Matthew 1 still. And also, we're going to go back to Isaiah 7. So we looked at the circumstances that surrounded the birth of Christ And with that, we saw that it wasn't just an easygoing time, but it was filled with a lot of turmoil and a fair amount of uncertainty. And that uncertainty wasn't on God's part, but the uncertainty was in Joseph's mind. Now, I'm going to recap by reading my expanded translation to give the sense of what's happening in this passage. And again, uh, I want to stress that my expanded translation isn't adding to the scriptures at all, but rather it's giving definition. And, and really that's what we need because we're culturally removed from that time and from that situation. So in doing so, in, in giving the expanded translation, I'm following what Nehemiah 8.8 8 says a teacher ought to do, and a teacher ought to give the sense so that the hearers can understand, and that's what I hope to do with all of this. So here's my expanded translation of Matthew 1, 18 through 22, which we covered in our first part, or the the first section, the first teaching last time. It is actually the second part of the firstborn, and today is the part three of the firstborn. If, if I didn't confuse you with all of that, I think I confused myself. So Matthew one eighteen, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his earthly mother, Mary had been betrothed, that is engaged to Joseph before they came together in formal marriage and consummated their union. She was found to be with child from the divine power of the Holy spirit. Verse 19. Although they were not officially married, the law of infidelity still was binding in the engagement. So her betrothed husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to have her be a public spectacle by being shamed and then stoned to death, resolved in his mind to divorce her and send her home privately, not involving the judge. Verse 20. But as he was considering these things, which Mary told him, and was contemplating divorcing her, 
An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the power of the Holy Spirit. 21. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, that is, the whole human race, from their sins. Verse 22, all this took place to bring to complete reality what was spoken by the prophet. Now, that was what we covered last time. Now, we're going to move into the quote from Isaiah, which is found in Matthew 1.23. The angel that was speaking with Joseph in the dream only partially only partially quotes the verse which is found in Isaiah 7.14. Then either the angel or Matthew gives definition to it by saying that Emmanuel means God with us. I personally think that it was Matthew who gave that definition so that he could give more expansion to provide more understanding for his readers. But either way, the verse in Isaiah 7 is only partially quoted. Now that part which is left out, that part which is left out is very important to the context of Isaiah 7. And understanding the, this context, it leads to uh, an insight, which I hope to convey in this teaching today. Now when a verse is referred to, were quoted from the Old Testament in the New Testament. Often, often the writer is drawing our attention not just, not just to that specific thing which he cites, that is, i.e., the verse. He's not just bringing our attention just to that verse. He is doing that, but in the broader picture, the writer is beckoning us to look at what surrounds that verse. Because the context around that verse is what defines it. Did you hear what I said? The context around that verse is what defines it. And it gives us the true comprehension of why he's choosing to cite it in his context of what he's writing. If Matthew and the other writers of the New Testament were to spell out everything that they cite from the Old Testament, then each of the Gospels and Epistles would be the size of the Bible itself. Because much of the New Testament is actually taken from the Old Testament. The Spirit who inspired these men to write, he also leads us into all the truth in John fourteen twenty six. Therefore, God the Spirit teaches us why he inspired these writers to insert a quote or a reference from a passage in the Old Testament. And in doing so, we then start to gain understanding. And that, that principle is going to come storming into play in this teaching. So as I've been doing in these messages, I'm going to first read 
from the English Standard Version of Matthew one twenty three. And then we're going to dive into the context of Isaiah 7 and hopefully gain more understanding. So the English Standard Version, Matthew 1.23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So if you're minded to and you have your Bibles, you may want to turn back to Isaiah 7 at this time because this is where we're going to be for a little while. Isaiah 7 deals with a certain king of Judah named Ahaz. A-H-A-Z, Ahaz. Now Ahaz was the 12th king of Judah after the kingdom split into two kingdoms. He was the 12th king. There was a northern king, which retained the name Israel, and a southern kingdom, which was called Judah, after the tribe of Judah. Now, 10 tribes went with the northern kingdom of of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and only two stayed in the southern kingdom, and those two were Judah and Benjamin. The split of Israel was the result of Solomon's departure from worshiping God alone. That was why the kingdom split. And he'd be drawn away from worshiping God singularly by his many wives. He had a thousand wives, so, and they were not all of Israel. They were from different nations. And so... That is actually the reason why God told Israel and mandated Israel not to intermarry with these other nations because of what happened with Solomon. Because Solomon was drifting away. And in so, he started to worship these false gods of his wives. And he started even building temples to them. So in 1 Kings 11:33 through 36, we have Yahweh pronouncing that the kingdom will be torn in two because of what Solomon had done. But due to the Lord's favor on David, Solomon's father, due to his, the Lord's favor on David, God would wait to do this till after Solomon died. But after he died, that's exactly what happened. The kingdom was torn in two. And 1 Kings 12 destri- describes this split. 1 Kings 12. And from that time on, there was great strife between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So if we fast forward, we come to Isaiah 7. And the 12th king of Judah, who was Ahaz. Now, we have to establish some things about Ahaz before we get into Isaiah 7 and his meeting with Isaiah, who was the prophet of God at that time. Ahaz, he was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 16 years in Judah. Now, during his 16 years as king of Judah, He fell further and further away from the Lord. 
It's said of Ahaz that he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. And I'm referring to the kings of Israel after the split. The kings of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, starting with the first king of Israel after the split named Jeroboam. Just to give you a little hint of what he was doing, he made two golden calves and told the people that these were their gods who brought them out of the land of Egypt and that they should worship them. And so it continued with the kings of Israel after Jeroboam. The common saying about them was that they, this king of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So that was said of many of the kings of Israel. So that being said, Ahaz having the banner placed on him in the scriptures that he followed after the kings of Israel, it wasn't a compliment. It wasn't a compliment at all. Now, he also sacrificed on the high places, which were, located, or which were locations by the Canaanites to worship their false gods. Now, the high places were supposed to be torn down when Israel first entered the promised land. They were supposed to be torn down. That was one of the things that God told Israel to do, tear down these high places, because in these high places— Terrible things happen. They were sacrificing their children. They would bear children and put them in a jar and stick them in the rocks for a gift for their gods. These were horrible things that these high places contained. And so he, Ahaz, is said to worship in the high places. Now, High places also, to give you a little bit more of a historical background, there was also places where Israelites worshipped Yahweh. But here's the problem. God didn't want them to worship in the high places because it was away from the temple. He wanted them to worship in the temple because it was a strict way of doing something. The temple, when you came to the temple and offered your sacrifice, the the priest would go according to the law and do everything according to the law. And there's a reason why, because all of these things depict Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Now, when somebody goes up to a high place and they're still going to worship Yahweh, they're going to do things their own way. And when they do things their own way, it completely negates what they're doing in a sacrifice because it's not following according to the way God prescribed it. So therefore, it means nothing because it's not foreshadowing Christ at all. And all of these things were to foreshadow Christ. That's just an aside. So he worshiped in the high places. He didn't worship Yahweh in the high places. He worshiped the other gods and the false gods in, in the high places. Ahaz did. And to cap off this list of his resume before he met Isaiah in Isaiah 7, to say nothing about what he did afterwards, actually, but to cap off this list, he also made offerings in the Valley of Hinnom, where he burned his sons as sacrifices to the god Moloch. This guy was evil. 
Ahaz was evil. Now these things can all be seen about Ahaz in 2 Kings 16 and 2 Chronicles 28. Now as a result of these things, Ahaz would lead the people of Judah astray from the Lord as well. And so the Lord would chasten the king and the kingdom of Judah. Now, chastening by the Lord is always from his grace. It's always from his grace. And it's always to show us that we're on the wrong path. And he's showing us that we need to turn around. So this chastening is always from the Lord's grace. In 2 Chronicles 28, that tells us how the Lord gave Judah into the hands of Israel and Syria, who, were, who was Israel's ally at the time. And it, this was done because Ahaz made the people act sinfully. Judah would battle on and off with Israel and Syria, and the Philistines were thrown into mix also at times. This was a very tumultuous time. But with the Lord, this was a measured discipline on Judah. This was measured on Judah. And this can be seen in 2 Chronicles 28, when at one of these times, when Israel and Syria allied against Judah, Israel took captive 20,000 women, sons, and daughters of the men of Judah. And they also took spoils back to the kingdom of Israel. But God motivated a prophet in Samaria, which is up where the northern kingdom was. He motivated this prophet named Oded, O-D-E-D. Oded to speak to the men who were bringing these 20,000 captives and all the spoil with them back to, to Samaria. And Oded convinced the men of Israel to return everyone and the spoils to Judah, as is seen in 2 Chronicles 28, 15. And that says, and the men who have been mentioned by name, and those were the men that Oded was speaking with, the leaders who brought them back leaders of the men of Israel who brought this, uh, these captives back, those men who have been mentioned by name rose and took the captives. And with the spoils, they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them. And carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, they brought them back to their kinfolk in Jericho, the city of palm trees. Then they returned to Samaria. Now, this is basically saying that they didn't keep any of the captives from Judah. The prophet, God motivated this prophet, Oded, to say, do not keep these captives. You've already beaten Judah in this battle. Don't make it worse on yourself because the Lord was, Lord's hand was on this. But if you do this, the Lord's hand is going to be on you in a worse way. So that's how he motivated them to give back these captives. So all this, in all this, we see the measured discipline of the Lord on Judah and how his hand was on it the whole time. 
And this was done to wake up Ahaz and turn him in the kingdom of Judah back to the Lord. That's why he was doing this. But Ahaz was arrogant and stubborn. He was pretty arrogant and he was stubborn and continued to buck against the Lord. So the battles between Judah and Israel and Syria would continue on and off. And now this brings us to Isaiah 7. And the Lord directing Isaiah, the prophet, to go meet with Ahaz. So Isaiah 7, 1, we'll start there. And I'm just going to pretty much summarize everything except for the verses. This one verse, just to give you the context of what's being said here. And then when we get down to the verse that is, the verses that are relevant, extremely relevant to our passage in Matthew. Isaiah 7, 1. In the days of Ahaz... The son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Now, I'm going to just explain the names in this verse. Ahaz was the king of Judah at this time. Jotham, who is mentioned in this, in this verse, was Ahaz's father. And Uzziah, who was mentioned after Jotham, he is Ahaz's grandfather. Now, both of these were kings of Judah previously. And they, it's said of them that they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Contrary to what it's said about Ahaz, they did what was right in the sight of the Lord. But there is something against them that they said they did not tear down the high places. So that's what, who those people are. Now, Rezin is the king of Syria at the time. And Pekah is the king of Israel. And that's another thing. Pekah, very tumultuous the kings of Israel, they were constantly overthrowing each other. There was battles within Israel itself to overthrow the kings. And, and Pekah gained that by killing Pekiah, who was in, in, preceded him. But at this time, Pekah was the king of Israel. So I just wanted to explain those names in that verse. Now, when Ahaz and the people of Judah heard that Syria and Israel were in cahoots and planning on attacking them. They were terrified. They were terrified. And the next verse in, in Isaiah 7 says, The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. That's a pretty good visual explanation of their fear. And... Really, this is much like this generation today. It really is. It's much like this generation today because no matter what comes a lot of people's way, they are dreadfully frightened and they are just dreadfully frightened and they're, they're wringing their hands together. And it really, that's a sign of a bankrupt soul without the knowledge of Christ to stabilize them. In times of distress within a nation, the true content of people's souls emerge. And we're seeing that in our daily lives today. People who are fearful about everything. 
Now, it's one thing to take precautions, but it's another thing to be fearful about everything. A lot of people are swallowing what the world system is feeding them, which is to be afraid of everything and everyone. And Pastor Knapp talked about this years ago. Years ago, he talked about this, about the cosmos, how it holds up cue cards and tells you to fear. And that's exactly what a large section of the population is doing today in America. They're reading and obeying the cue cards of the cosmos and falling apart in it. So it was with Ahaz and Judah. That's exactly what they were doing. They were falling apart in this. They were terrified because they were not resting in the Lord and seeking his guidance. And we're going to see that coming up. So because of these situations that were going on, because Israel and Syria were planning an attack on Judah and Ahaz was shaking in his boots or his sandals, as it were, God sent Isaiah and his son to Ahaz to encourage him and to tell him not to fear these two kings, the king of Israel and the king of Syria. What Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, wanted to do, what their plan was, was to overtake Ahaz and set up a puppet king in his place. A puppet king. A king that they could control and align with against the threat of Assyria, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A, which was a very powerful kingdom at this time, Assyria. So there's Syria, who's allied with Israel, and there's Assyria. But Isaiah, speaking the words of the Lord, said to Ahaz with regards to him being so afraid, he said, don't be afraid of them because that which they are planning will not come to pass. And and then he goes on to tell them that the, both of these kingdoms, kingdoms are going to be shattered in a short amount of time. So don't be afraid of these two because what they're planning to do to you, it's not going to happen. Then Isaiah tells Ahaz, if you, don't stand in, if you don't stand firm in faith, then you will not stand at all. That's a principle that we should cling to today. If you don't stand firm in faith, then you're not going to stand at all. Ahaz, he was a descendant of David. And he was also in the line to Messiah, as is seen in Matthew 1.9. He was also in the line to the Messiah. And you see that in a genealogy in Matthew 1.9. But he definitely didn't follow in the footsteps of his forefather David, as a man who trusted the Lord. Although David had his faults, he was had a heart after the Lord, as is seen in the Psalms. And that's what was in David's heart. That was in what was in his heart during times of trouble and during tri- times of ease. Hence the reason why it's said of David, by the Lord himself, 
that he was a man after God's own heart in 1 Samuel 13, 14. And Ahaz, he surely wasn't a picture of Jesus and his complete reliance on the Father for everything. Because Jesus is the greater David who would always do what was pleasing to the Father in John 8, 29. And Christ would humble himself, even being obedient to the nth degree by giving his life as a ransom on the cross for all humanity. In Philippians 2, 8, in connection with Hebrews 2, 9, which you should be very familiar with if you've been around for Pastor Knapp's Hebrew series. Ahaz, he was as opposite as you could get when it came to standing in faith. He would rather trust in the arm of the flesh, which is always a foolish thing to do. And trusting in the arm of the flesh, no matter who it is, no matter who it is, it's not a good idea to trust in the arm of the flesh. Because if you put your confidence in man, it's bound to fail. So Jeremiah 17, 5 tells us, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. And that's what we do when we trust in somebody's flesh and say, they're going to deliver us. They're going to be the answer. Only the Lord is the answer for any of the issues that are going on in this world today. Now, this verse in Jeremiah 17, 5, this verse depicts Ahaz to a T, as we're going to learn. Because he's already planning on trusting in the might of man rather than having faith in the deliverance of the Lord. So he's going to put forth mock humility. And this is important. He's going to put forth mock humility towards the prophet Isaiah. But the prophet doesn't fall for it. He knows what's going on here. Isaiah knows what's going on. So continuing in Isaiah 7, again, the Lord spoke to Isaiah saying, this is in verse 11. Ask a sign of the Lord, your God, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. The Lord is speaking through Isaiah and telling Ahaz to ask for something that, that's so crazy. He says, ask for something that's so crazy that only the Lord could do it. That's what he's basically saying. I want you to, to think of something that's so insanely crazy that no man could do it, only the Lord could do it. In this way... God would prove to Ahaz that Isaiah is telling him the truth in all of this. And in turn, this would give him a firm stance in faith. That's why he's telling him to ask for a sign. But as I said, Ahaz has already decided to put his trust in the arm of the flesh because he walked by sight and not by faith. He would eventually make an alliance with the king of Assyria. And his name, the king of Assyria, is 
Tiglath-Pileser in 2 Kings 16.7. He makes an alliance there. There Ahaz would say to the king of Assyria, now listen to this, what he says to the king of Assyria. He says, I am your servant and your son. This is what Ahaz says to Tiglath-Pileser. I am your servant and your son. Come and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and the king of Israel. So Ahaz in Isaiah 7, 12, remember he just says, no, I'm not. He's, 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 Isaiah says, ask for a sign, make it crazy, make it as crazy as you can. Make it as from the, the depths of Sheol to, to the, to the heights of heaven. And Ahaz here in Isaiah seven twelve says, I'm not going to ask. I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, if we don't know the history, and this is why I'm doing this, if we don't know the history behind this passage, you're going to think that Ahaz is a pretty humble guy. And he's basically saying, If we don't know the history, we think that he's basically saying, I don't need a sign from the Lord because I believe everything that he says. But gaining the background, gaining the background about Ahaz, we can see what's really going on here between him and Isaiah. But Isaiah isn't fooled, as I said earlier. Isaiah isn't fooled, as is seen in verse 13 when Isaiah says, Listen, house of David. Is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of God? Isaiah knows exactly what Ahaz just said. And he's just only saying it to get Isaiah out of his hair because he has other plans. He has plans to make this alliance with the king of Assyria. So he's thinking, I just say, I will not put the Lord to the test. No, that's okay. And now we come to the verse in Isaiah 7:14 that's partially quoted in Matthew 1:23. Remember, this is all this is all background to understand the verse of Matthew 1:23, actually the verses from 123 through 25, because what I'm going to tell you in all of this, what we're, what we're covering in all of this is going to define all of that, and it's going to shed light on it. It's the background about it, but it's also the, the doctrine that is coming out from the scriptures that is going to define that passage for us. So Isaiah 7:14, as I said, is only partially quoted. In Matthew one twenty three, but this is this is how Isaiah seven fourteen reads, and it may make more sense to you now. Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. The Lord Himself will give you a sign. In other words, He's saying you don't want to ask for a sign. Then the Lord's going to give you a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call call his name Emmanuel. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of the message, the first part of the verse is left out in Matthew 123. 
And either the angel or Matthew adds definition to the, the name Emmanuel. But although definition isn't given in Isaiah 7.14, it is given in Isaiah 8.10, where Emmanuel is used a few verses earlier than that, and then definition is given to it about uh, God with us. But as I continue to explain in the beginning, that which surrounds a verse that's quoted in the New Testament from the Old Testament, that which surrounds it is often very important to the whole understanding. It's often extremely important to the whole understanding. And so it is here where we gain further insight into who Christ is and what it means that God is with us from the context which surrounds Isaiah 7.14. Now let me first, before we get into that, let me first explain the prophecy Isaiah gives. Isaiah is saying that because Ahaz, in mock humility, wouldn't ask for a sign, then the Lord will give him his own sign. Ahaz could have asked for whatever sign he wanted to. But he said, no, I'm not going to ask, and I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. So now the prophet says, okay, well now, since you don't want to ask, the Lord's going to give you his own sign. Even though Ahaz has made his decision to trust in the men, in, in mankind, and not in Yahweh, which will end up plaguing, by the way, it's going to end up plaguing Judah, as explained in the rest of Isaiah 7, the Lord will still preserve the line of the seed and eventually bring forth the God-man, Jesus, from the virgin. That's what this means. That's what this means, that the, the sign that the Lord gives to Ahaz. And that's the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, as is evident in Matthew 1. But the further insight that we gain from this passage stems from Isaiah 7.12. When Ahaz says, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, when the Lord asks you to do something, when he tells you to do something, it's best to do it. Now, let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. When God told Peter in Acts 10, in a vision, rise, kill and eat. When a, when a sheet of all these animals came down in this vision of when Peter was on a housetop in Joppa. And the sheet came down. And, God, and, and within the sheet, there was all these animals. And some were clean and some were unclean. Now, God said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, no way, Lord. Mm -mm. These animals you're showing me in this vision are unclean. And me being a good Jew, I'm not going to touch anything that's unclean. And you know what God told him? He said, don't call what I've cleansed unclean. God was showing something to Peter by this. He was, he was showing Peter something. And what he was showing was that he cleansed the Gentiles. So don't call the Gentiles unclean anymore. God has cleansed the whole human race. Don't call them unclean. 
And when God told him to rise, kill and eat, he wanted him to obey. Just as the Lord was going to show Ahaz his faithfulness in fighting for him and Judah, but Ahaz in his fake humility wouldn't ask and said, I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, if you're sharp, if you're sharp, you may be thinking, where have I heard that before? To not put the Lord to the test. Jesus says the same thing. When he's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And there is the difference. That's the difference. Jesus is being tempted by Satan. But God himself tempts nobody in James 1.13. So there's a huge difference between these two instances. Even though they both stem from the same portion of scripture in Deuteronomy. And, that's, and this is where the insight comes in. This is where the insight comes in. So stay with me with all of this. I want to make clear that our learning about Christ is a collaborative effort. The more and more I study, the more and more I am diving into the word, the more I realize that it's a collaborative effort. Any tool that we use to study, whether it's a Greek, a Greek uh, lexicon, whether it's a concordance, whether it's a Bible dictionary, whatever it is, we're collaborating because we're using all these people who have went before us to write these things, to do this work, to ferret out all this information. And we, like no other time in history up to this point, have access to so much information. And it's all a collaborative effort. But not only that, but it's a collaborative effort in the fact of what Pastor Knapp teaches all the time. What he teaches in message after message after message, insights begin to arise from from these messages. And one of the insights that he brought out, Pastor Knapp, and this is where I'm, I'm giving credit where credit is due, was his groundbreaking insight into the Israel of God. Now, that plays into this insight that I'm bringing forth today. That has its roots in that, as it were. And I also want to give credit to R.T. France in his book, Jesus and the Old Testament, which was given to me by Pastor Jeff Stewart. Now, ultimately, after saying all of that about a collaborative effort, ultimately, All the insights that we have come from the Holy Spirit in John 15, 26. And he guides us into all the truth in John 16, 13. We don't come up with anything on our own. We can't understand the scriptures on our own. Pastor Craig Brown and I were just speaking about this on the phone the other day. That if the Lord doesn't build the house, then the builder's building in vain. <laughs> There's... It doesn't matter how much you study. If the Lord's not giving you the understanding of it, 
you're wasting your time. So if you, if we think that we're doing something in this and it's not God who's giving us all of this information, then we're arrogant. So it's God who gives us this. So in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, after Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, he was being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Now we're privy to this meeting between Christ and Satan where no one else was present. Nobody else was present in this meeting. Have you thought about that? We're privy to this that no, where no one else was present. So this is an account that had to come from Jesus himself. This wasn't an eyewitness account. This came from the Messiah himself who told his disciples about it. Now, in this encounter, Satan tempts Jesus three times and uses scripture to do so. Now, as we saw with Ahaz quoting a part of Deuteronomy, So Satan was quoting scripture and he was wielding the sword of the word. But that doesn't make it applicable to the situations that he was actually with Christ at that time, talking to with Christ at that time. It does in a sense, and I'm getting off track with this, but what I'm saying is there was a specific thing that was going on here. It wasn't just that Jesus was hungry. He was, but there was much more behind the scenes that were going on here. And we're going to see that today, hopefully. Jesus, the word incarnate, he would wield the sword of the word correctly and choose his scriptures precisely. That's important. He chose these scriptures precisely. In all three of Satan's temptations, in all three of them, Jesus brings out scripture from one specific passage in the Old Testament. One specific passage. Having having the whole of what we call the Old Testament in his mind, he focuses in on one specific passage for all three of his rebuttals. Now, this shows us that this passage in Deuteronomy, where she brings out all three of those rebuttals from, this passage in Deuteronomy was absolutely in Christ's mind. The passage to which I'm referring is when Moses was speaking to Israel after 40 years in the wilderness, as they were on the verge of the promised land. Now, this coincides with Christ and his 40 days in the wilderness. Remember, please remember what I said about a verse being quoted or referred to from the Old Testament in the New Testament. That the context around that verse is also being brought into what that person is quoting. That's extremely important here. The context around it is being brought in. And we don't have time to get into each one of these verses that Jesus quotes in the the three rebuttals that he gives. 
because we won't have time to get back to Matthew 1 if we do that. But I'll tell you the verses, and you can look them up on your own, and compare them with the verses in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. Deuteronomy 6.16. And Deuteronomy 8.3. All in that small cluster of Deuteronomy. And those are not in the order that he quotes them, but I just gave them in numerical order. Now, as I said, all these are from one specific time when Israel was on the verge of the promised land. That's important for you to keep in your mind here. They were on the verge of the promised land. So what does this have to do with our passage in Matthew 1? And the context of Isaiah 7, which is quoted in Matthew 1.23. What does this have to do with that? Yahweh, this is where it's going to come together. Yahweh says in Hosea 11.1, he says, Israel, speaking of the nation, Israel is his son. But as we see through the scriptures, Israel, they were unfaithful and they went after false gods and rejected their father time and time and time again. As Malachi 1, 6 states, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, speaking to Israel, the nation. Now he's speaking, as I said, to Israel, who again prostituted themselves out to other gods and rejected their one true God and father. Now this is seen over and over again in Israel's history. Jesus Jesus, when focusing in on this one specific portion of Deuteronomy, is identifying himself as the one true Israelite who will be the faithful son of God as he embarks on his mission given by the Father in Isaiah 42.1 in connection with Hebrews 10.5-7. Now, if you look these verses up that I'm telling you, and, and this goes for everybody who teaches, especially Pastor Knapp, because he gives hundreds of verses. But if you look them up, you're going to gain the understanding of what the speaker is talking about. So I'll repeat that, what I just said. Jesus, when focusing in on this one specific Portion of Deuteronomy is identifying himself as the one true Israelite who will be the faithful son of God. Remember, Israel was called his son in Hosea 11.1. 1. But he will be the faithful son of God as he embarks on his mission given by the Father. Now, this mission was to bring everything back to the Father which was separated by sin and death. Romans 6, 23. Romans eleven thirty six, 36. 
Romans 5.10, 1 Corinthians 15.21, and Ephesians 1.10. If you look those up, you'll see what I'm talking about. And this mission that he embarked on was successful. Completely successful, by the way. In preparation for this mission, as the son, as the son, he learned obedience through the things which he suffered in Hebrews 5, 8. Now in Deuteronomy 8, 2, which is the verse before, which is the verse before Jesus quotes that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God in Matthew 4, 4. In one of his rebuttals, it's Deuteronomy 8, 2 is the verse previous to what he quotes there. Remember what I said about the context. It's not just the verse. It's the whole context of what Christ had in his mind. He was identifying himself as Israel. This is Deuteronomy 8.2. And it says, the Lord, your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. That he might humble you. Testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. That's what God said to Israel, the nation. Jesus Christ, focusing strictly on this portion of Deuteronomy, identifies himself as Israel. And he humbled himself under the guidance of God, the spirit who led him into the wilderness. Where he was tempted, not by God. He wasn't tempted by God, but he was tempted by Satan. But the father allowed this testing so that the son would demonstrate his obedience in preparation for the cross, which lay ahead. Jesus, like Israel, was going into the promised land. Jesus, like Israel, was going into the promised land to vanquish his enemies. Remember what Israel had to do when they were on the verge of the promised land and when they went in, led by Joshua. They had to vanquish all the Canaanite nations that were in there because they were demon-possessed nations. They had to vanquish them all. They failed in their mission. Jesus, like Israel, was on the verge, was going into the promised land to vanquish his enemies. But where Israel failed, Christ Jesus succeeded through the cross, which destroys the power of sin and death in 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. God, when speaking through Moses, this is another, another layer on it, and this is defining our passage in Matthew. God, when speaking through Moses to Pharaoh in Exodus 4.22, calls Israel my firstborn Son. Guess what word that is in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Guess what word firstborn is in that passage in Exodus 4.22? Yeah, you're right. It's prototokos. The same word which is used in the Textus Receptus. That's why we went through all this in one in our, in, in our last teaching. The same word that's used in the Textus Receptus. In our passage of Matthew 125. Remember what the risen Lord Jesus told his disciples in Luke 
24:44 that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be brought to complete reality that's the word plerao that we discussed last time it must be brought to complete reality Christ Jesus as the firstborn of all creation has entered into the promised land and is bringing everything with him as is seen in Colossians 1:15 through 20. That promised land is the apokatastasis pantone in Acts 3:21, the restoration of all things. He's already there, but he's bringing everything in because he went in and he vanquished the enemies. Therefore, Emmanuel, which means God with us, is the name for the one faithful Israelite who is Jesus Christ. And because he has entered his creation as the God-man, Everything, including all humanity, will be with him where he is in the endless ages to come. 1 Corinthians 15, 49. Romans 8, 29. 1 John 3, 2. And Revelation 21, 5. Now, I hope you're following this with him identifying himself as Israel and what God had called Israel in the Old Testament. Because now we can go back to Matthew 1 with a little bit more understanding under our belt. And here's my expanded translation of Matthew 1.18 through 25 because all of what I just said was explanation of verses 23 through 25. Matthew 1, 18 through 25, my expanded translation. The birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his earthly mother Mary had been betrothed, that is engaged to Joseph, before they came together in formal marriage and consummated their union, she was found to be with child from the divine power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, although they were not officially married, the law of infidelity still was binding in their engagement. So her betrothed husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to have her put in public, to be a public spectacle by being shamed and then stoned to death, resolved in his mind to divorce her and send her home privately, not involving the judge. Verse 20. But as he was considering these things, which Mary had told him, and was contemplating divorcing her. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the power of the Holy Spirit. Twenty one. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people, that is the whole human race, from their sins. Twenty two. And all this took place to bring to complete reality what was spoken by the prophet. Now we get into the new section here at the end. 
which everything that we said before this defines it. Verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit and bear a son. And all creation, notice my translation, and all creation in the restoration of all things shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because when they say in that word that says they in that in in the English there, that is in the future plural. So in other words, could it be talking about Mary and Joseph? I think it's talking about all creation and the restoration of all things. When every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and they will say, truly God is with us. That's what I think it means. Let me continue in verse 24. When Joseph, who was chosen by God, woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife. And verse 25. And he did not know her sexually till she brought forth from her the son, the firstborn. And Joseph called his name Jesus. The son, the firstborn. Jesus is the uniquely born son as both God and man. And he is the firstborn of all creation. This passage is not merely saying, it's not merely saying as a lot of the English Bibles and probably all of them that are translated, transliterated from the Textus Receptus that she brought forth her firstborn son. I don't think it's saying that at all. It was obviously her firstborn son. This is talking about something way bigger. God is talking about something way bigger as the whole context surrounding this verse shows. So I'll say this again. This passage is not merely saying that he is the firstborn child of Mary, but rather that he is the firstborn of all who will enter the promised land that he has conquered and entered first. Hebrews 2, 10 through 15 in connection with John 14, 23. So the context surrounding Isaiah 7, 14, quoted in Matthew 1, 23, shows us Jesus is the one true faithful Israelite who will establish the tribes of Israel as a servant who was given as a covenant and a light to the Gentiles. And God's salvation in this way shall reach to the ends of the earth in Isaiah 49, 6 in the Septuagint. Translating that from the Septuagint. He is, as he is the firstborn, as Jesus Christ is the firstborn, the father sums up everything in his son in Ephesians 1, 10. And therefore, we are all, all, all incorporated into Israel because we are all in the one faithful Israelite who is Jesus Christ our Lord. John 10, 16. Father, we thank you for your magnificent plan, which you have not just bought us back, 
you have not just redeemed us, but you have lifted us to a place where we, have, we, we would have never been before had you have not entered your creation and that God would be with us. Emmanuel means so much more than we think it means. We've just scratched the surface on what Emmanuel means. And Father, we ask that you would continue to teach us, continue to give us understanding, continue to have us grow in love for you by giving us insights into who you are and what you've done for us. Because we didn't love you first, but you first loved us. Thank you for this. And we ask, and I ask, Father, that the words that were spoken today would be profitable to build up, to encourage, and to bring us more in love with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.